This is Ideas at the House, a podcast showcasing the very best live talks straight from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. American writer Kate Bolick's blockbuster Atlantic article, All the Single Ladies, examined the remarkable demographic shift away from marriage and grappled with what resisting the intense social pressure to couple means for women. Now, her book Spinster combines memoir, feminist theory, cultural criticism and sharp historical research. At All About Women 2018, she took to the stage with moderator Jess Scully for a brazenly political and deeply personal discussion about the opportunities of modern singledom. Today, there are more single women than ever before in history. In America, 53% of all women are unmarried. It's unprecedented. It's an unprecedented demographic shift. As the marriage historian Stephanie Kunz has put it, today we are experiencing a historical revolution every bit as wrenching, far-reaching, and irreversible as the Industrial Revolution. And singledom is central to that story. But until very recently, it was a story that's rarely been told. Uh, I read recently that, there, that studies show that children who know their own family history are more resilient than those children who don't. There's something about seeing themselves as part of a larger group with a unifying narrative supplies uh, what psychologists call a strong intergenerational self. In other words, they know that they belong to something bigger than themselves. I think that the same goes for single women. Knowing the centuries-long arc of single women who came before us creates a family of sorts, a unifying narrative that equips and empowers us with knowledge and insights that strengthen our own modern-day selves. Single women have, of course, always existed, but it wasn't until the Middle Ages that they they began to be most visible, whether as nuns who felt the call of God, uh, or or women who didn't so much feel the the call of God, but were poor and saw that living in a convent was a lot better than living with some asshole and being his... (laughs) housekeeper. So they, they're like, oh yeah, I hear God calling. <laughs> uh, they were also witches, those freelance entrepreneurs who knew everything there was to know about her herbal remedies and lived on the margins of society. Or prostitutes who mingled with men but had few, if any, rights. Back then, the only socially respectable way for a woman to work outside the home was to get a job spinning wool into thread. Isn't it interesting how those, you know, the prostitutes and the spinsters, it's kind of similar, those images? Um, They were called, these women who spun wool into thread were called spinners or spinsters, which at the time was just a neutral occupational descriptor like baker or fishmonger. Because the only women who were able to work were those without responsibilities at home, spinsters tended to be young, single, childless women or older widows. Judging from artworks of the period, it seems to have been a pretty good job. You got paid money and you hung out with other ladies all day. (laughs) Like, I want want that job. Um, Or you just had some time to yourself, which is a, a rare commodity even now. It wasn't until 17th century America that the term spinster took on a pejorative cast. 
In order to build a new population, every man, woman, and child needed to be on board. So that for women, that meant as soon as you became fertile, you had to be giving birth until you lost your fertility or died first. You probably died first. If you didn't, you had 8.2 children. And you were pregnant many more times than that because most of your children died in infancy or, you know, so it was not fun. Uh, if a woman wasn't married and having children by age 23, that's when she was called a spinster and was considered a drain on society, if not a menace. If by age 26 she was still unmarried, she was called a thornback, which is a species of flat, spiny fish, and that has not stuck around. <laughs> but that's when the, the notion of a spinster as a cranky, old, lonely woman began to take shape. Marriage-obsessed Victorians more or less carved the stereotype into stone, adding variations such as the batty old maid and the dried-up maiden aunt, you know, and then created card games so to, like, to further indoctrinate us with what we would look like if we didn't get on board and get married. It's just so weird. Uh, what intrigues me about the word spinster today is that though it's not part of our everyday vernacular, we all agree on who she is, that cranky old lady with too many cats. And when we're feeling down about our romantic lives, we pull her into service. We say, oh my God, I haven't been on a date in months. If I don't find someone soon, I'm going to wind up a lonely old spinster. <laughs> it's as if the spinster is a ghost floating around, haunting us into believing that it, there's only one way for a woman to live, to be a wife and a mother. It's all the more intriguing, then, to pause and take a look at the various ways in which the single woman has been portrayed in the modern era. There's uh, Rosie the Riveter. There's the femme fatale. There's the ever-delightful Mary Poppins. I think she might be my favorite spinster. Uh, there are dangerously sexy lesbians who live on Lesbo's Alley. <laughs> There were even wholesome campaigns meant to show the positive sides of spinsterdom. This is a, a 1958 pamphlet produced by the Australian Catholic Truth Society. <laughs> as, as women began to live alone in growing numbers, uh, television executives got with the program, giving us the truly wonderful Mary Tyler Moore, who is my other favorite. It's like Mary Tyler Moore, Mary Poppins. Those are my two go-tos. <laughs> and then, of course, came Sex and the City. So by the time I was coming of age as an adult in the late 1990s, the most popular single lady in town was Carrie Bradshaw. Sex in the City was really important for dramatizing a new demographic reality, but I didn't see myself reflected in the show. All I saw was a bunch of frivolous women obsessed with dating and buying shoes. Uh, so yeah, here, just, these are just a few of the way, you know, when, when Carrie would talk to herself and ask questions. Um, you know, so she would just ask herself these questions that I thought were dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my own interior voice sounded a lot different than Carrie Bradshaw's, but not in a fun way. My interior voice just freaked me out. <laughs> I was like, 
seriously, it was a dark time. <laughs> really, it was, it was, I was really freaked out by myself. So to make a very long story short, and a story which is told in my book, Spinster, I channeled my alienation from my own cultural moment into looking for single women whom I could relate to. Among my first discoveries was the 19th century writer Neith Boyce. So there she is, um, looking like a proper bohemian. She was one of the leading lights of Greenwich Village, Bohemia, in New York City at the turn of the last century. She was born during the Victorian era, but she was not at all like the Victorians I'd learned about at school. In her early 20s, she moved to New York City to live alone and be a writer. She worked at newspapers, wrote several novels, uh, became, you know, became this cool lady, um, doing her own thing. That someone like her existed back then blew my mind. Uh, I hadn't known. <laughs> I just thought Victorians were a bunch of prim, prude, repressed people. And it turns out there was this whole other kind of Victorian. And I quickly learned that Neath was one among many. By the 1890s, industrialization had created a bottomless need for workers and teachers. And so young unmarried women were flooding the cities to live and work on their own. There were so many of them that they were given their own moniker, the new woman. The new woman was always depicted in a shirtwaist and ankle-length skirt with her hair piled on top of her head. She was tall and athletic, striding up and down urban streets on her way to work. I always just love to do the, um, the new woman strut. She's like this, like on her, she's got places to go. Or pedaling around on her bicycle, they were always on their bikes. Her image was all over the popular press, meaning that for the first time in history, single women were seeing themselves reflected back to them in a positive manner. Of course, not all women. The new woman was always depicted as white, slim, able-bodied, and heterosexual. Nonetheless, the emergence of these single women constituted a bona fide revolution in gender expectations. They were ordinary shop girls, stenographers, typists, factory workers, transforming the workplace. They were social activists like Jane Addams, who launched what is now the social welfare system. They were poets and novelists and painters, and they were questioning the institution of marriage. Indeed, in 19, 1898, a time when women were still wearing corsets, Neith Boyce wrote a regular column for Vogue magazine. And this is, a, as you can see, it's a cover of Vogue magazine, 1898. Uh, she wrote a column called The Bachelor Girl about her decision to never marry. She said questions, stuff like this. She was so ballsy. <laughs> she just was on it. She was, she was Carrie Bradshaw 100 years before Carrie Bradshaw, but way better than Carrie Bradshaw. So she just owned her girl bachelordom. She was funny. Uh, it's funny in a, a pre-self-deprecating way. I, I, I felt when I was coming of age, all the joking was about how, you know, just bad jokes on yourself. And, uh, and Neith was just genu genuinely wry and incisive and made living alone sound like a really great time. Uh, instead, uh, instead of squandering her expendable income on expensive shoes and weekend brunches. She read and she wrote and talked philosophy with her friends. She lived a life of the mind, you know, in the city on her own. 
Learning about Neith is what made me realize that single women had been written out of history. Had I known that they'd existed, had I known that women have been longing for solitude and questioning marriage for centuries, maybe I wouldn't have been so freaked out by my own interior voice. To put it another way, not knowing our own history limits the ability of women to think expansively about our lives. So I was thunderstruck. If Neith Boyce could strike out on her own, so could I. I broke up with my boyfriend and began in earnest my career as a single woman, Neith Boyce style. Um, Mind you, unlike Neith, I wasn't writing any novels or newspaper columns at the time. Back then, in the early 2000s, my writing about the single life was confined solely to raving diatribes in my diary. Uh, There was one other significant difference between Neith's life and my own. She couldn't have sex outside of marriage. I could. This is a doily to represent (laughs) how Neith could not have sex. Uh, so you know now, and then flashing forward, you know now we're in the like you know 2000s, 2000 whatevers. Um, at first, the freedom to have sex with whoever I wanted, whenever I wanted, was liberating and exciting. But it didn't take long for the novelty to wear off. I realized that I didn't actually know how to have casual sex, and mostly this is because I'm not a casual person. But in addition to my temperament, I just didn't know how to spend time with a man without it veering onto that familiar, expected path toward coupledom and marriage. This is when it struck me that I had been infected by the stereotype of my own era, the hyper-sexed single woman. By now, casual sex is so intimately bound up with the prevailing cultural image of the single woman that there is no longer any one representative face, no Mary Tyler Moore or Carrie Bradshaw. Casual sex is all of us. So now I'm going to don my sociologist's hat. Not, I'm not a sociologist, but I read things that they write. Um, so this is, a, this is a percentage of married households in the United States. Um, speaks for itself. So dating emerged as a social practice in the early 1900s to accommodate the many young people who'd moved away from home and who would no longer be marrying the farmer who lived down the lane or whatever. Uh, By mid-century, when marriage rates were at their highest, look at that, 80% of people were married at mid-century. Courtship and dating patterns were firmly fixed in place. Uh, For example, when my mother finished college in the 1960s, she dated around for a couple of years, met my father, and in 1969 joined the vast majority, as Neith used to put it. That is, she got married. Back then, courtship was fun because you only did it for about two minutes. The whole point was to make a decision fast and get on with things. But a lot has changed in the decade since. Uh, To to look at that another way, we have another chart. Uh, When my mother finished college, only 17% of women were single. Today, I mentioned this statistic already, but in the US, that number has climbed to 53%. There are more single women than ever before in history. Meanwhile, the age of first marriage continues to climb. In my mother's day, it was 20. Now it's 27 and rising. Yet, In spite of the fact that most people now spend at least a decade on their own before marriage, and often longer than that, we continue to treat this period of time as a courtship phase. 
But rather than a few years of running around, today the pursuit of love is a digital marketplace that's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, consuming a great deal of our time and money, and in return, generating a great deal of anxiety. How are we supposed to find, listen to, and heed our interior voices amidst the deafening static and buzz of all this activity, data, and information? Sure, some people are having the times of their lives out there, but more common is Aziz Ansari. Is that resonating? <laughs> to recap, in January, an online magazine ran an account from an anonymous woman who'd gone on a dinner date with Ansari and then gone back to his apartment and experienced a distinctly not pleasurable sexual encounter. Our lives as single women are radically different than they were just a generation ago but we're still grappling with outmoded institutions and practices, trying to unsingle ourselves at the earliest possible moment. What if instead of thinking as single, of think, what, if, uh, what if instead of thinking of singledom as a problem that needs fixing, we see it as a way of being that's every bit as valid and valuable as coupledom? What if we channel our energy into ourselves, into our careers and creative passions, making full use of the boundless opportunities that are ours for the taking? What if, instead of worrying that we'll wind up lonely old spinsters, we embark on adulthood enjoying our many freedoms? Does that sound familiar? Men! That's what men get to do. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> of course, it's, it's not a particularly enviable time to be a man right now. I brought up Aziz Ansari as a punchline, but I also see that incident as the embodiment of modern courtship. He was enacting the contemporary dating ritual as we know it. For all the progress that we've made as women, courtship remains stuck in the 20th century, still revolving around habits like men picking up the check, but now also with the full expectation of post-dinner sex, which isn't always mutually gratifying. What struck me most about the Ansari account was how common it was, how familiar. The expectation for sex, but on a man's terms. That is, sex removed from sensuality or female pleasure that resembles more closely a scripted social interaction than an actual sexual interlude. So maybe we don't have to embark on adulthood like men. Maybe instead of modeling ourselves on other people, we just be ourselves. The problem with heroes, after all, is they always let you down. After I discovered Neith Boyce and drew from her the strength to leave my marriage-track relationship, I located her biographer, and what I learned devastated me. In 1898, while Neith was writing her column in praise of the never-married life, she was being hotly courted by the handsome anarchist labor writer Hutchins Hapgood. <laughs> <laughs> The following year, she married him, on the condition that it be an open marriage, which itself is a whole other story. But I was like, what? <laughs> Neith, we were going to be single together for life. <laughs> what? <are you>, what? <laughs> uh, so what I took away from that unexpected turn of events is that emotions are changeable. And when it comes to love and singledom, we can't look to other people to be heroic paragons of virtue and resolve. What we can do is pay attention to the unconventional lives taking place all around us, present and past, and open ourselves to the innumerable ways in which people choose to live. Rather than looking for heroines to aspire toward, I offer you the term awakeners. 
Uh, I borrowed it from the great American novelist Edith, Edith Wharton, who used it to describe the books and thinkers that guided her intellectual journey. In my own book, Spinster, I use it to describe the single women from, yester, from yesteryear who awoke me to new and different ways of thinking about love, marriage, and not marriage. Finding your own awakeners is really easy. Take inspiration from wherever you see it. Movies, books, paintings, an interesting-looking person on the train. Be always on the lookout for your own guideposts. Be always curious and be always awake to possibility. Your awakeners will amplify your interior voice and make you stronger. Right now, with your own life, you are writing history. So make sure that it's really interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies. Oh, that was wonderful. Kate Bollock, everyone. Wasn't she amazing? Oh, thank, thank you. you. Oh, you are such an awakener, <laughs> honestly. Um, you, you had some US stats in there, but I know you've, uh, Spinster's coming out in, in translations and editions all over the world. How universal is this experience? So it's, yeah, it's been really interesting to watch Spinster live around the world. It's, uh, across the Western world, it's pretty consistent. Uh, then in China, there's the phenomenon of leftover women, is what it's called. Uh, there, there's an excess of women, and there are very few, quote-unquote, marriageable men. Society does not know what to do. It's been pretty new and interesting. Um, I've found that in uh, countries with strong social welfare states, they're not, uh, they're not at all threatened by spinster. So, uh, like, places like Italy and Spain have, which are fairly religious countries in comparison to others, uh, they, they really respond to spinster and find it exciting and kind of and radical. Uh, whereas in Canada, everyone's like, yeah, I know, sure. And, and, and I think that's because they have a, a, a social welfare system that means that they can live as adults outside of marriage more comfortably. So in America, I think everyone likes to pretend that they, they marry solely for love, but in fact, they're often also marrying for health care and benefits and the stability that come with the rights of marriage. And so, so I think spinster can hit a weird nerve sometimes in America because people are like, what are you talking about? Like, I, 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 I marry for love, I, but, but it, it's conflicted. It's different. I'll tell you what, I've been tempted a few times just to pay half as much rent. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, let's, not, <laughs> let's not talk about real estate. We are in Sydney, but we're not going to go down that alley. Um, one of the things that really resonated for me um, reading Spinster was this idea of us as women defining our own narratives and centering ourselves in the middle of our stories. And early on in the book, you talk about the, the way that we define the single woman. She's always defined in relation to someone else or what she doesn't have. Um, can, you, can you tell us more about that idea of, of developing our own identities and our own narratives on our own outside of the context of a relationship? Yeah, you know, the... Spinster began as a book, as a, like a tiny little seed in my mind. 
in, in my 20s when I first discovered Maeve Brennan, who I write about in the book. And I first became aware of her because of a photograph in The New Yorker of her. She was a writer at Mid-Century who wrote for The New Yorker. And uh, she, A, looked like the most autonomous woman I'd ever seen. And then B, her writing, which is beautiful and amazing, and everyone should read all of Maeve Brennan's work. It was the first time I had ever read a woman writing about herself not in relation to someone else, whether as a daughter, a mother, a wife, a friend, a sister. And, and that opened up something for me. That opened up a way of realizing, like, yeah, I want to learn how to live in the world on my own, mm. not as these things that I've been defined by all of my life. And, you know, and doing that, of course, is hard, right? Like, we all know, like, just staying true to yourself, listening to your own voice, can be, it can freak you out, <laughs> it can make you feel lonely, but it's, you, know, you just really do have to keep listening to your own compass, mm. and you know, I guess you can't listen to a compass, but, you know, but just li li listening to yourself, and when, uh, one of the greatest compliments I've received is a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at NYU where I teach about spinster, and the professor who introduced me said, um, Kate has, the, has always had the courage of her eccentricities. Isn't that great? I was like, wow, thank you. I just felt like a weirdo. And <laughs> That's another thing I love in your book, where you say, um, am I too, am I too, have too many enthusiasms right. to actually live with anyone? And that's one of the things I find when you have the opportunity to define yourself as your own person, is you have all this time. Right? Yes. Like you're just swimming in time that all my married friends don't have. Yep. I'd never have to have a conversation with anyone about what I'm having for dinner. Yep. Um, and, and I think all that extra non-dinner conversation time right. is what lets you have your eccentricities and your enthusiasms, no? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny, when I was going through one of my dark periods of singledom, my brother, I have a little brother, and... He was like, Kate, it was because some guy dumped me, and I was, like, devastated. And, and he said, Kate, you're the cake you bake. If that, <laughs> if that guy doesn't want a slice of your cake, there's another, there's another cake down the counter. He can go have that cake. You're your own cake. <laughs> and it really helps. I walked around, and I was like, I'm the cake I bake. It was I'm really the cake I bake. <laughs> I'm going to turn that into a hashtag now. <laughs> Love that. You know, it's so funny because I'm, I'm never happier on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. I'm never happier than when I'm on my own pursuing my eccentricities and enthusiasms. But there's this voice in my head that's telling me that I'm not normal or that there's something wrong or that I'm not adulting um, because I'm not defined in relation to someone else. How do we shut that voice up? Yeah, I think that the, the key to shutting up that voice is just like a version of cognitive behavioral therapy, that when you hear your negative thinking, you just say, shut up, self. That is the culture talking. <laughs> That's not yes. you. And I mean, I don't know any other way to do it. Do you? No. But, um, but 
But uh, something to do with the labels, I think, has, has, has got to, you know, we've got to start interrupting that thing where we we describe women as, you know, the, the, the Sheryl Sandberg leaning in or the childless executive yeah. or the, um, the woman having it all is another one that you talk about. And yeah. um, I guess we interrupt it in our conversations with our friends and we point out that that's not true really for anyone. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I'm glad that you talked about the, the typification of women. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's as if we're still exotic creatures. Yeah. And need to be put into a zoo with little labels <laughs> on us. Yeah. But maybe that comes back to your idea of um, single women are kind of a disruption to the, the right. order, the status quo, the, the financial, the economic system. Um, and so we need to be of a type. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it still surprises me that even today, single women are considered a threat in certain circles. And it can even be just in the most boring way, like when you can feel another woman thinks that maybe you want to get in on her man or something, you know? Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> vixen. Yeah. Um, speaking of the economy, I loved this point in your book about how uh, economic and social conditions really define the way that single women are portrayed. And um, you say single women are perceived more positively when the economy needs them meaning that macro-level financial forces have contributed mightily to their public reputation. Yeah, that, that, was, that really was a, an awakening moment when I put that together. Uh, so, you, yeah, you can just look back over history and when an economy is booming and there are lots of jobs uh, and we need people to fill them, we like women to leave the house and have jobs. And we don't care so much that they're not home pumping out babies, but then as soon as the economy starts tanking, uh, society wants the jobs to go to the men, and women become threatening. We don't want the women to have the jobs, and that just goes up and down, up and down. And another, I mean, now that I'm thinking about the up and down, up and down, another thing I was trying to show in Spinster is that, you know, we, we like to think of progress as a straight line going from here to forever best, but in fact, it's circular or... Um, is it is circulinear? Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. But it, it's it, it loopy. Loops. Loopy loops. is what you're yeah. looking for. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's loopy. It's totally loopy. Yeah. Well, you know, those graphs. I love a graph, but those are probably my favourite graphs now, because now every time someone asks me why I'm not married, I can say, well, in 1890. Yeah. Only yes. Yeah. So um, this idea that we we think all of the past look like the 1960s. Right. Uh, how do we break that? I mean, how do we break that culturally? I suppose that's a, a big way that we can do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of hate that so many answers about how we have to change culture come down to television and movies yeah. and advertisements, but it's true. Like, we still don't even see single women in advertisements, really. Uh, we, it's mostly... Advertisements are mostly catering or ta targeted to, to mothers still. Um, and guilty mothers. Yeah, yeah. Hairy. Every surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. Guilty mothers who have no time. No. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we just need to see more... We need more women directors, film writers, screenwriters, filmmakers, you know, all of that. We need them to be putting women's stories into the atmosphere and... That you know, we need to be pulling history out and telling those stories so that we can see that the way we think of this this monolithic marriage model of the you know the heteronormative 
man with his barbecue set and lady in her apron and their kids in the garage. You know, that was a flash in the pan. That was just a, you know, a, a blink in American history. And there's been no other time when the economy has been so strong that you could have one person staying at home all day not working. You know, for the rest of American history, it's been dual income families. Uh, even if, you know, women were working at home and men were, were in the public sphere, so-called. But anyway... But, I mean, anywhere that had, um, you know, a, a settler or colonial mindset, I mean, people were out there working on farms or... Um, work, it's also a class thing, I suppose, as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that people who were working class, until very recently, everyone had to work. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and class and spinsterdom yeah. is, is, is interesting. Um, when I sat down to write the book I, and was going back into my family tree... I realized that we didn't have any spinsters in my family tree because we weren't rich enough. We were just a kind of mutt immigrant American family. My dad likes to call, call us dirt farmers, you know? So, so everybody, uh, you know, for a very long time to be a spinster was a privilege. It uh, afforded only to the upper classes. So even if you were staying at home and taking care of your family, um, but or if, if you could live outside of the home, it was because you were born into a family that had money for you. Uh, and so I have, you know, I, I have rich friends who have these glamorous spinster aunts back in the family tree that I'm really envious of. I, I wrote about one in spinster who turned out, so Edna St. Vincent Millay, famous, iconic poet of the early 1900s, free love, free sex, everything. Um, my childhood friend, who comes from a wealthy family with many dignified spinsters, um, one of them had an affair with Edna St. Vincent Millay in the 1920s, and she had tattoos. I didn't know that women... She had, like, a tattoo behind her ear and on her ankle. It was pretty cool. I wish I had a great aunt like that. Kate, we're first-generation eccentrics. Yes, right, right. <laughs> right. You know, we will be somebody's, somebody's crazy aunt. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> I think about that a lot, though. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, when you talk about the self-deprecating humour thing, um, I often, um, well, when I have to, describe myself as a pank. Um, oh, right. Professional auntie, no kids. And, um, <laughs> uh, and it's kind of like a sort of a way of cloaking something that I'm not totally comfortable with in, in something that makes it a choice and makes it more assertive and... Yeah. Do we need to stop joking about this stuff and talking about the fact that sometimes it does hurt? Oh, I mean, I would love to talk about the pain of aunting. Can I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I wrote an article for the New York Times, like in 2010 or 11, in praise of aunthood. And so I had been an aunt for a few years at that point, and I was like, this is it. This is the best. <laughs> I don't have to have kids. I have this amazing niece. I've got it all figured out. And then my brother had another baby. And that day, in the hospital room, when I went to meet her, I felt for the first time this change. Like, oh, right. Now they're a nuclear unit, and I'm on the outside. Yeah. Uh, but then there I was in the public eye all of a sudden because of this article, like, in praise of aunthood. But in fact, my aunthood started to take on a darker cast where I, you know, my brother's kind of pissed off at me because I don't 
babysit enough or their like weird expectations. I want to raise them a certain way that they're not doing. They're raising them their own way. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, this is right? more complicated than it seems. Yeah. It's all responsibility and no rights as far as I can tell. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so many things I want to talk to you about, but <sighs> this idea of Living Alone Well, which I think you got from um, Edith Wharton, yeah. is one that I think we have to talk about because, you know, this is the great challenge of... I mean, for me, it's, oh, why would I cook? It's just me. I'm just going to eat, you know, some sardines from a tin, which is a perfectly acceptable dinner. It is. Um, <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, living, living alone well, um, this idea you talk about... Um, establishing what your needs are and meeting them. How do we help ourselves do that it, with the absence of, um, you know, figures in the media or, or, or eccentric aunts? Or... Okay. Yeah, I love this topic. So first of all, you, when you start to live alone, you have to recognize, oh, I've always lived with other people before, like my parents or whoever, and roommates in college, and then roommates after college, and now I'm alone. And this is a, a totally different and distinct way of being that requires a lot of intentional thought. Mm. Now, I'm glad, you know, Susan Cain has made the introverts, the whole introvert revolution's been going on, and um, I, that's actually a very useful way to start. I, I discovered that I'm, a, I'm an ambivert, so <laughs> that means that I, I'm a little bit extrovert, a little bit introvert. And it sounds like that's the greatest because you get to have everything. In fact, it's kind of hard because you never really know which one, you know? It's like, you're like, yes, I'll go out. Let's do that. You want to go to all the parties and do everything. And then you get totally depleted and drained and depressed and you need a week to recover. And so that was a lot of my learning how to live alone was just learning how to figure out how to spend my time. So I was afraid of being lonely. So I would overbook my schedule and then I'd be seeing friends all the time and then I would get get totally exhausted, and then I'd hermit away, you know, and just like never leave the house for days, and that would be sort of beautiful for three days, and then it would get depressing, and I wouldn't be showering, and I was eating too many sardines, Oh my you God, know? sardines, Uber Eats, all of the stuff, <laughs> yeah. just don't leave. And the, okay, yeah. this, this is super dorky, but something that I actually did was I have a Google calendar, and I started keeping track of how I spent my time according to color. So every category, work, socializing, personal time, travel, doctor's appointments, like self-care, um, everything had its own color. And I fastidiously filled it in for months so that I could see, like, kind of trend how I spent my own time. And it helped me figure out what I needed and, and didn't need. And that made me feel a lot more calm. And then also another way to think about living alone is, or the way I did it, because I'm slightly eccentric, was to think of my house as a place of occasion. So I loved to have friends over for tea. I'd have like tea parties or dinner parties or little cocktail soirees. So that was a really big part of living alone for me for a long time, was that it, making my space feel special and central. That sounds lovely. I mean, mine is much more of a cave full of things. <laughs> but um, I, 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 you talk about the sort of two faces of the single woman, which is a similar sort of idea, this idea that we have to go out and be happy and social and get all your social energy while you're out. But then 
you know, you come home and you sort of lock yourself away and you're the introvert at that time and, um, and trying to get that balance right can be quite hard. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you, you have, you, you've got, you've described it in a beautiful way. The dueling desires for intimacy and autonomy. Um, and, and that's, I guess, in relation to relationships of all kinds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that was the central tension for me yeah. through my 20s and 30s was I, I had this fierce desire for autonomy, but also for intimacy. And I did not know how to find autonomy within intimacy. Some people are really good at it. I wasn't. I just was really good at, I wouldn't say I lost myself in my relationships, but I just let the relationships become all-consuming. And it took me a long time to unlearn those habits and learn how to be, I, I do, I'm in a relationship now and I think of myself as a spinster in a relationship because in a lot of ways my life isn't any different. It has changed. Um, and some of those changes were uncomfortable. Um, like kind of insert in like unspinstering was a process. <laughs> oh my god, that's the next book. <laughs> I'm ready for that one. Okay, I have more questions for Kate, but I know you do too. So make your way to the microphones if you have a question for Kate, and I will ask a question while we're getting there. Okay. It's a really easy one, so you know, 25 <laughs> words or less. Um, race and class. Um, <laughs> So much of our independence, I think, comes because um, of financial independence. Um, but it's not true for everyone. Um, but also age now. I mean, one of the things I find staggering in Australia is that the fastest growing group of um, women, of people experiencing homelessness, are women over 55. Um, and there, there comes a point where women who have cared for people their whole lives suddenly find themselves redefining themselves uh, as single people. Um, how, how do we have a different sort of conversation about singlehood in, in these four different communities and with different communities? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about that in terms of feminism in general, that I want us to get better at being intergenerational. There is so much knowledge contained in these different age subsets that is contained. We're not doing enough cross-pollination. And ageism is a crazily huge issue. It's the only ism that affects all of us. <laughs> but we talk about it the least. Mm. And it's, it's very pernicious. And uh, I, I, I don't have answers for, for ageism, but it's something I'm, I really think about. And I, I've been struck with, you know, I'm in my 40s, and in my own peer group, there's a lot of fantasizing about, um, like, how are we going to grow older? Are we going to have a commune? where we all get to live together and hang out and kind of do it like Golden Girls style. And totally. like there's, I, I see so many, like my friends joke about it, but I see articles sometimes. It makes me wonder if there will be ways, you know, that society does morph and change to accommodate new realities when there are large numbers that make that happen. So just as we are seeing changes in the, you know, the old decrepit old age homes, aren't, you know, there are better ways to age in place and so forth now. And, and so I do wonder if that will create more space for single women. In fact, there's a, in my hometown in Massachusetts, a, a builder, a developer is building this whole new, like, super green 
sub-zero, whatever it's called, I forget, place, like living residential community, and he's allotted 12 apartments for older single women exclusively, um, just so that they'll have places to live. That's fantastic. Yeah, really nice. So intergenerationality intergenerationality and then also intersectionality, I suppose. Yes, and and also, I mean, and another note, I've just been thinking recently in terms of intersectionality about how it's no coincidence that Black Lives Matter and Me Too are started by, you know, African-American movements and that black women have learned and been taught a, a kind of power by necessity that white women haven't. And so they are able to push forth these really strong voices that white women have a lot to learn from. Not that, I don't mean to say that black women have to be teachers, but that there's still so much intersectional learning in in both directions. Absolutely. Uh, We have a question over here. Hi. I'm a little bit short, so I'm just going to do this. Um, firstly, oh, the commune. My girlfriends and I have talked about that. We're actually going to buy a winery so that we can... Oh, that's brilliant! I'm stealing that idea! Oh, my God, yes! <laughs> I just wanted to ask a question about... We talked a little bit about silencing your inner voice, but how do you silence those external voices and not actually silence, get them to celebrate your choices? Um, as someone who left a 10-year relationship that was very much ticking all those social boxes, um, I was very fortunate to have my single girlfriends around me who were like, you can live alone, that's okay. Like, let's go up you looking at apartments and things and we'll talk to you about how you do rent um, when you're on your own. Um, but my friends that were married and even my own mother said, but you're going to be alone. And there was a, I got a lot of criticism from that. And it was exhausting challenging that. And I just wanted to... I haven't read your book yet, and I will buy it after this, but I just wanted to kind of get your perspective on how you actually not only kind of, I guess, silence that, but actually get your choices celebrated in the same way that we celebrate those more, I guess, socially acceptable choices that women make. Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, one not great solution is to get rid of those married friends who make you feel bad. (laughs) And... I, I, I went through that phase. Yeah. You know, there, there were, uh, I did, my, my friend evolutions totally reflect where I was moving through my ideas about singledom. Um, also, mar- the married people in general have to really change themselves and do the work to understand that single people do have different lives that are okay. And also, in, in terms of the, the kind of feeling, oh God, I just lost my thought. No, I mean, let me jump in here because, oh my God, okay, this is a now counselling session. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, losing your married friends, that can happen, but they, um, you do it intentionally and then they disappear for a bit and then the kids turn five and suddenly they've got time again and they come back. Um, right, yeah. Or they do that excellent thing, which I call mere mailing, where you're like, oh, I'm, you know, it sucks, I, I, I want to be... I'd love to, to feel appreciated by someone. And um, they're like, oh, you don't want that. I mean, you know, James never, you know, puts the toilet seat down or takes the rubbish out or whatever. And you're just like, you're just... It's, it's such a, a simplistic view of yeah. um, what singlehood looks like. Singlehood is freedom and going out all night and spending all the money on yourself and being in this perpetual state of kind of teendom. Right, teendom, right. And, and when they're not pitying us, 
they're resenting us yeah. for our freedom. So that is the flip side. I, I had the, the pleasure and honor of sitting next to Fran Leibowitz last night at the dinner, and um, she said, oh, whenever anyone complains about not being married, I just say, haven't you ever met a married person? <laughs> <laughs> it's that whole thing where they want everyone to be as miserable as them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because any... Oh, I don't mean it. It's a joke. <laughs> go, go. Hi, I apologise as well, I haven't read your book and I will buy it again after this. <laughs> That's all I want, buyers. <laughs> yeah, it might, the answers might be in there. Um, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about interdependence in either singledom or in relationships, um, because I find I quite, quite often flip between the two, like, I am so independent, you know, <laughs> I don't need you, I just moved yesterday and my friends were like, can we help? And I was like, no. And they're like, oh, sorry, you're a single woman. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's, I do that too. And my therapist gets on it. She's like, what? I can't remember. But anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's just another balance that you have to find. It is, I mean, you know, weirdly, uh, two years ago, right before Spencer was coming out, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And everything's okay now. But it was a really scary time. And it taught me how... Even though I think of my, like, I have no qualms calling up my best friends when I'm in emotional duress and want to, like, make them listen to me when I <laughs> need to talk about something. But when it came time to dealing with, like, breast cancer and doctor's appointments, I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't want to. It, it just felt like I want to do this alone. This is my own private thing. Nobody else is involved. And I had to really push myself to let other people be part of the experience, which is weird, <laughs> like cancer experience, <laughs> but like, but people want to, like people want to help you. Your friends want to help you move because they want to help you see, they want to help see you through that transition and be part of it because they want to be part of your life. And so sometimes it's as simple as that. Um, but I, I definitely found like through, it took me a long time in my I just, the, the friendship in singledom could get confusing for me sometimes because I would, you know, my friends became my emotional center and I could be relying on people more than I should, or my brother, for instance, more than I should. And it, so I did have to learn a lot of self-reliance in that regard. So I'm, I'm not giving an answer here. Do you have one? I think, you know, a, a lot of it, I think, is about distributing the load in, right. you know, when you're lying on a bed of nails got to have a yeah. lot of nails. Or, or as I write in the book, diversifying your portfolio. <laughs> diversifying your portfolio yeah. is a much better metaphor than <laughs> ever that one. But I get it. Do you know what I'm saying? It. Yeah. So yeah, I spread, spread yourself around, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is all working. I should stop talking. Um, anyone? Oh, yes. Good. <laughs> oh, I hope to help. Um, I adore this idea of being a spinster in a relationship. I oh, think good. that's incredible. Because um, I'm in a relationship and I'm with a friend and we often talk about trying to find the balance and kind of watching our friends. I'm sure we've all had friends who start a relationship and then they just fall off the edge of the earth. Yep. And it's very fucking annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't ever want to be that person. And I love my partner, but I adore my friends and I enjoy my life. And I really hope you write the book on Spinster because I need it. But I guess my question is, in a very basic breakdown, how did you and how are you striking that balance? Because it's something I'm constantly thinking about and talking about and trying to 
find as like a woman who wants to be well-rounded and more than a partner and a very good friend at the same time. I am so glad you asked this question. This is like the thing of my life right now is thinking about this. And, and so part of it is like what you were just saying, just spreading yourself around, like taking that mentality into your relationship. And so like we hear lots, of, there's like lots of lip service given to, oh, you can't rely on your partner for everything, but you can't. And so for instance, my best friend is so much more romantic than my boyfriend is. <laughs> so All of she, my friends are more romantic than my yeah, boyfriend is. Yeah, so she's the one who's like texting me like this morning, like <laughs> she wrote this whole long email about pretending that she's in the audience right now and she's leaning to the person next to her and going, that's my best friend up there. And, like, <laughs> and, and just like, and I know you look great and you chose the right dress and blah, blah, blah. And just like all that reassurance and love and my boyfriend's just like, hey, hope you're feeling okay. You know? <laughs> and so it's, it's been funny to actually get my romantic needs <laughs> Fed by a straight friend, um, and but yeah, I just I just feel very alive to the fact that I get very different things from different people in my life, and that I absolutely, you know, I don't rank them really, you know, or, or like the 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 ranking pool has several people in it. It's like it's my boyfriend, it's my best friend, it's my dad and brother. There are a couple of other friends in there. You know, and then there's the next layer of people who I would drop anything and do anything for. It's just that I don't happen to talk to them every day, you know, and so on. But uh, it doesn't, I don't know, I don't do that thing where my boyfriend is like the special one. Mm. It's like there are a lot of special people. And that is, it's once, it, it seems just more like a mindset that once you're doing it, then you have no problem making time for it. You know, so, so Nicole, my best friend and I, like we end up taking a lot of vacations together. My boyfriend and I don't even go on vacations together because like we're both working too much and Nicole and I are able, it works with our schedule. And I can feel sort of guilty sometimes that I'm leaving my boyfriend home alone, you know, as I gallivant off with her, but I quell that guilt because it doesn't really matter. Uh, I agree. <laughs> That's great. Wow. Um, you, you've given us a lot of, of different ways of thinking about single as um, probably the defining thing for most women for most of their lives now, um, which I think is something we need to internalise and communicate with a lot of other people and bake into the culture in every way we can. And you've given us a Google Calendar tip, which is probably... <laughs> Probably my favourite thing so far today. Um, but you also talk about um, Edith Wharton and how she was masterful at creating her own life as a single person. And she did it through decorating, which is a whole other conversation which we need to talk about separately. Um, but can you give us, leave us with um, a, another piece of advice or a piece of advice about designing your own life, creating your own life space and identity as a single person. Yeah, so, so Edith Wharton, a uh, great American novelist, uh, born into a very wealthy family, did the conventional things when she was a young woman, got married, uh, and then when she was around 40, she left her husband, and also around this time, she was des designing and building her own house in Massachusetts in the countryside. And she 
so she was thinking about architecture sociologically and psychologically uh, on her own. Now there's a lot of science that backs up the sort of stuff that she intuited. So I am not rich enough. I'm not as rich as Edith Wharton to do things like, you know, she had her uh, boudoir, which was like heavily decorated with lots of patterns and textures. And that's where she would do her, um, her busy work, like writing her correspondence or tallying up her servants' pay that week or so forth. And then in her bedroom, which was light and airy with huge windows, she sat in bed and wrote. And, and now science actually shows that closed spaces with lots of patterns and dark colors are very conducive to that kind of busy work, whereas open, airy spaces are good for flights of the imagination. So uh, reading her ways of thinking about interiors really resonated with me. Like I couldn't do it the way that she could do it, but I could do things like say, I am absolutely only going to live in an apartment that I love, even if it takes me four months of like beating the streets, looking for places. Like I care about what my living spaces are like. And, and, you know, and that's all specific. I like crumbled down grandeur <laughs> is what my apartments tend to be. Um, but, but sort of holding on to what makes me feel you know, pleased. And, and so when I'm sitting in my bed and looking at the curtains. God, it's, it sounds so dumb, but it is so important. Like, I just want to love those curtains. And, and you don't need to be rich to find curtains that you love. Mm -hmm. and, and so making your, your home your kind of palace like that, where everything, I mean, I mean it's, it's a powerful feeling to sit in a place, a small, I've always had very tiny apartments, but to sit in a tiny apartment and look around the room and think, huh, I own everything here. <laughs> None of it is valuable. <laughs> if, if robbers came, they would walk away empty-handed. <laughs> but I've chosen it all. I love everything in this place specifically, and I find that to be really, you know, like, uh, energy-giving. Mm. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Well, here's to being eccentric aunts and yeah. excellent single people. Yeah. Please thank Kate. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. That was Jess Scully. She was with Kate Bolick, and they were at All About Women 2018. There's plenty more where that came from, so make sure you subscribe. Ideas at the House is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next week.